In Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 27, the Sadducees are denying the resurrection of the dead. They deny it with an argument from the absurd. If a woman marries a man, and then the man dies, and then she marries another, and he dies, and she marries another brother, and it ends up being married to seven men, and she dies, whose wife shall she be in the resurrection of the dead? Our Lord then answers in three ways. One, he plainly rebukes them. You do not know the Scriptures. You do not know the power of God. You are in error. You are led away from the truth. Then secondly, he refutes their presupposition about the nature of the resurrection. The resurrection of the dead is not a return or a restoration to an earthly existence. But the resurrection body is a body that is incorruptible and spiritual, fit for a new heavenly existence in the presence of God, beholding his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Then thirdly, in verses 26 to 27, Jesus Christ then proves that the resurrection of the dead is taught by the Bible. And it's to this final argument we come to this morning. We preached more time than usual on the nature of the resurrection last week, simply because there needed to be adequate teaching and distinctions. And so we'll have this final argument from Christ for the rest of this sermon. And we will study verses 26 to 27 under three headings. One, Christ's biblical basis for resurrection. Two, Christ's biblical interpretation and resurrection. Three, Christ's biblical hope of resurrection. So first of all, Christ's biblical basis for resurrection. The Sadducees deny that the resurrection is taught by the Bible. Is it? Jesus Christ affirms the Bible teaches the resurrection of the dead. And as touching the dead, that they rise. Have you not read in the book of Moses, how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is Christ's biblical proof for the resurrection of the dead. Is it not interesting from where in the Scriptures he quotes? Christ could have quoted from any passage in the Old Testament. He could have quoted from a 
clearer passage than he cites here. If you were to quote and prove the resurrection of the Old Testament, where would you go? Christ could have went to Daniel 12 too. Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Or he could have went to Job chapter 14 verse 14. If a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait until my change comes. Or Job 19.26, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Or he could have quoted Psalm 16, which speaks of his own resurrection. Or he could have used examples. He could have went to 1 Kings chapter 17, where through Elijah's prayer, the son of the widow is raised from the dead. Or he could have went to 2 Kings chapter 4, where the son of the Shunammite is raised under the ministry of Elisha. Christ could have went to any of these clear passages and more, but he did not. Why didn't he go to any of these passages or clearer passages? The answer is this. Christ graciously condescends to the Sadducees. You'll remember from last week, the Sadducees denied that the books of the Old Testament were inspired except the five books of Moses. They believed only the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, these alone were the word of God. And therefore Christ in his graciousness condescends and uses these five books as the authority to prove the resurrection of the dead. And this principle is something that was used in Paul's ministry and he exhorts every Christian to use likewise. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 19 the apostle Paul says this, I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. Unto the Jews I became a Jew that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law, as without the law, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might be all means to save some. And that's what Paul was doing. He's copying Christ. Christ, if you like, becomes a Sadducee to witness to the Sadducees. He comes to the five books of Moses and says, here is what you believe, here's the resurrection. Paul says, 
when I go preaching and teaching, whatever a man is, I condescend to their level and bring the truth of the gospel to them in a certain way. And this is what all Christians are commanded to do. Imagine you're witnessing to a Jew, and a Jew denies the New Testament Scriptures. Well, you may come and use only the Old Testament Scriptures to prove the truth of the gospel of Christ. And imagine you're witnessing to a Muslim, and in the Muslim they, they believe only the Injil, the Gospels of the Word of God, and they deny Paul's epistles. You could graciously condescend to them and just use Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to prove Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So let us be us. When we're witnessing and evangelizing to friends and family and work colleagues or people in the street, let us be Christ-like. Learn from the Pauline example and be all things to all men so that we may win some for the gospel. But what passage of Scripture did Christ use? Well, it's Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. Here, Moses has fled from Egypt because of the slaying of a man. He is 40 years and he's a shepherd. And as he's out shepherding, he sees that there's a, a bush and there's fire, but the bush is not consumed. And he comes and approaches it, and it's God the Lord speaking. And the quotation is in verse 26, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Jesus says, this text is the biblical proof of the resurrection of the dead. This text, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, proves the dead shall rise. But when you come to this passage, you might think it rather strange to go to this text to prove the resurrection of the dead. The word resurrection is not in the verse at all. The subject is not the dead rising again. And the context of Exodus chapter 3 is likewise not the resurrection of the dead, but the specific context is God coming to Moses and saying, I remember my covenant, I hear the cries of my people, and I will redeem them. So how is this passage teaching the resurrection of the dead? Is Christ using exegesis, sorry, eisegesis rather than exegesis? That is, he's forcing his doctrine into the text rather than finding doctrine out of the text. Is he just spiritualizing this text? Or is he using allegory to interpret the text? How would you find the resurrection of the dead in this text?
Well, Christ tells us his principle of interpretation in verse 27. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. And this teaches the resurrection of the dead. You see, Christ interprets the Bible not merely with explicit, clear statements. He interprets his Bible biblically, shall we say. That is, principles including logical inference. Truths that are not on the plain surface, but are deduced and inferred from the text. What we call good and necessary consequence. But he also reads his Bible theologically. He's not simply looking at the grammar, the relationship of words, and the historical context, but he reads his Bible through the prism of theology. And by using these principles of interpretation, Exodus 3.6 teaches the resurrection of the dead. It speaks here in the verse of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All three have been dead for centuries, over four centuries in fact. They are buried in the body, uh, sorry, um, Abraham there is is buried in the, the cave of Machpelah and so is Isaac. And so uh, these men have been dead for centuries. But God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It says, I am present, continuous. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What does it mean to be dead? And what does it mean to be alive? This is Jesus' theological interpretation. Well, Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 teaches us what it means to be alive. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. So to be alive means to be body and soul together. What does it mean to be dead? The body and the soul are separated. Ecclesiastes 12.7 Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. And since Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are dead God is not the I was the God but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Death means body and soul separated. Life means body and soul together. Therefore, Exodus 3, 6 teaches the resurrection of the dead. Though at the present time, 
the body of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are buried in caves, and the souls are in heaven with God himself. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. Therefore, they are awaiting to be alive again, body and soul uniting and being with God forever. This is how Jesus Christ interprets Scripture, and this is how he finds resurrection of the dead in Exodus 3, chapter 6. And if anyone denies this truth or interpretation, they do greatly err. You're wrong. You do not know the Scriptures, the power of God, and you have not read correctly your Bible, and you have not rightly interpreted Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. And what was the response from all this? Matthew 22, 33, uh, 33, it says, And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. They were amazed. They were marveled. They were persuaded and convinced by the biblical interpretation of Jesus Christ. And it says here in Mark 12, 28, how the scribes, the official teachers of the law, how did they respond and one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well. This scribe and other scribes are impressed at Christ's reasoning and persuasive arguments for the resurrection of the dead. They agree. And therefore, we can know without a shadow of a doubt that the Bible teaches the resurrection of the dead. Whether it's Exodus 3, 6, or Daniel 12, 2, or Job 14, 14, or Job 19, 25, and 26, or Psalm 16, Psalm 17, Psalm 73, or the plentiful scriptures of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15 being the fullest. We know that the resurrection of the dead is a teaching from the Bible. And therefore, there are two applications from Christ here. One, Christ's biblical interpretation in resurrection. And two, Christ's biblical hope of resurrection. This, first of all, teaches us how we are to interpret the Bible. Most of the differences between uh, Christians, professing Christians and cults, is not our view of the Bible but how we interpret the Bible. The difference for the Sadducees in Christ, at least in terms of the Pentateuch, was how to interpret. Christ and Sadducees interpreted the Bible with different principles. 
The Sadducees interpret the Bible only with explicit, clear statements. That's why they didn't find the resurrection in Exodus 3.6. The Sadducees also use their reason above Scripture. That's why they use an argument from the absurd. The resurrection of the dead does not make logical sense to them, therefore it must be denied. But Christ is different. Does Christ use explicit, clear statements? Yes, of course. Does Christ use reason to interpret the Scriptures? Yes, absolutely. He doesn't use reason above Scripture, but he uses reason as a handmaid, a helper to Scripture. And as we've already stated from verses 26 to 27, Jesus Christ also uses logical inference. Good and necessary consequence. He reads his Bible with his theology informing his interpretations. And with the Sadducees' interpretation and their principle, deny the resurrection. With Christ's principles and interpretation, affirm the resurrection. And therefore, if we are going to read our Bibles, it's not enough to read our Bibles. The Bible commends that we are scripture searchers. John chapter 5, 39, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. Search your scriptures. Acts 17, 11, speaking of the Bereans, they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily. But you must not merely read or search, you must study your Bible with biblical, Christ-patterned principles of interpretation. Do you do that? Do you only read the Bible? Or do you study the Bible? Big difference. As R.C. Sproul preached for 50, 60 years It is not enough to read your Bible. You will not grow reading your Bible. You grow when you study your Bible. And how are you to study your Bible? You are to use good and necessary consequence. Just like Christ did here. Now what exactly is that? We've used the Ryan McGraw definition before and we'll use it again because it's so helpful He defines it as this, the term good and necessary consequence refers to doctrines and precepts that are truly contained in and intended by the divine author of scripture, yet are not found or stated on the surface of the text and must be legitimately inferred from one or more passages of scripture. As the phrase indicates, such inferences must be good, that is, legitimately drawn from the text of Scripture. In addition, they must be necessary as opposed to imposed or arbitrary. So, the word will not be used, or the truth is not on the plain reading or the explicit statement. But it's within the text itself. And by logically deducing, 
you will conclude with a text that teaches a truth by the logical inference. That's how Christ found the resurrection of the dead in Exodus 3.6. And this principle is everywhere in the Bible. Everywhere. For example, in verse 36, Jesus Christ is here defending himself and proving that Christ is not only the son of David, but the son of God. This is his proof that he's the son of God. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. That's Christ's proof. The word son isn't there. The word Messiah isn't there. So how did Jesus get it? Good and necessary consequence. David is on earth, human. And he's speaking to the Lord. And he's also saying, the Lord said to my Lord. So there's a distinction of the persons, two lords there in terms of persons. There is God the Father, one person, speaking to God the Son, my Lord. And my Lord, with Scripture interpreting Scripture, is the Son of God incarnate who is before you and he will rule and reign till everyone is under his footstool. This proves Jesus is the Son of God. Or the Trinity. Matthew chapter 28, 18 to 20, where we have baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. The word Trinity isn't used there. One being three persons, the words are not used there. There is no clear statement in that verse that God is triune. Therefore, good and necessary consequence is used. There's only one name, but three, Father, Son, and Spirit. So one and three. Name is the revelation of the essence of God. Remember in Exodus 3, I will tell you my name, I am that I am. So one divine being. But this one divine being uh, exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. And there's and, 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 distinguishing three persons. And the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and the Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. And therefore, conclusion, God is one essence in three persons. Or baptism. You take texts like Genesis 17, Ezekiel 37, Acts chapter 2, and the household references in the New Testament, and by good and necessary consequence deduce that children are always members in the one covenant of grace and are to receive the visible sign of that covenant of grace. The household children in the Old Testament are to be circumcised as infants. And the children of the household covenant are to be baptized as infants. 
consistent interpretations of the Bible as Christ did. And then you can add so many other doctrines to this host. But when someone interprets the Bible by logical inference and good and necessary consequence, it is exactly the same authority as explicit statements. Because Christ says, he is not the God of the dead or the living, you do greatly err. Good and necessary consequence is, thus saith the Lord. George Gillespie. Necessary consequences from the written word of God do sufficiently and strongly prove the consequent or conclusion. If theoretical, doctrinal he's speaking, to be certain divine truths which ought to believe. And if practical, things we are to do, to be a necessary duty which are obliged by divine right. So let us read the Bible by good and necessary consequence. Don't be a proof texter. Well, where does that say that in my Bible? Show me a proof text. Give me the clear, explicit statement of that truth. Well, you're not reading your Bible like Christ. Christ did accept explicit statements and logical deduced inferences by good and necessary consequence. And that's why I find personally as a pastor, when you preach on controversial and disputed topics, doctrinal and practical, people respond in a negative way. Not everyone, I'm sorry, some people, because it doesn't say it black and white on the face. Because they're reading their Bible like the Sadducees and not like Christ. So train yourself to read your Bible like Christ. I would commend that book, Ryan McGraw, Good and Necessary Consequence, so you can read and study and learn the basics of the principle. And then apply it every day as you read the Bible. But apply it and use it. I find some Christians who are reformed, they know controversial subjects depend on good and necessary consequence. So when they read the Bible for these subjects, they read it good and necessary consequence. But when they're reading their ordinary Bibles every day of the week, they don't apply that principle. So they have it for the doctrines, which is good, but they don't apply it for their ordinary readings, and therefore their own daily Bible readings are not as deep. So let us all learn this principle and apply the principle to daily reading. But then secondly, Christ also interprets his Bible with a theological lens. Remember, God is not the God of the dead, body and soul separated, but the God of the living, body and soul together. So we must read our Bibles theologically. We must have biblical doctrines, truths, and then interpret other passages in their light. And if you do this, your Bible study will be rich. Let's say you come to a verse, John chapter 14, the Father is greater than I. If you don't read your Bible theologically, you will start to believe and teach that Jesus Christ 
as a deity is subordinate to the Father. But if you have your theology, you will understand that Jesus Christ is speaking as mediator and is under the Father. And then all the Christology and all the depths and the riches of your Saviour will come forth through three logical readings. Or take 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The love of God the Father, the grace of Jesus Christ, and the communion of the Holy Ghost. If you do not read that with a theological Trinitarian lens, you will have a superficial view of blessing. But when you understand the doctrines of Trinity, indivisible operations, appropriations, missions, and you read that text, it will absolutely deepen your love for Father, Son, and Spirit. And it will keep you away from, well, heresy. One example today is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, where many in the professing Reformed church use this text. The head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. And therefore, because God is the head of Christ, that means in the Trinity, God the Son is subordinate to God the Father. And this logically means, though they deny, three wills in God and tritheism. But if you read your Bible theologically like Christ, you'll bring your Trinitarian theology. You'll bring the simplicity of God. You'll bring your Christology and the distinction between Christ's essential glory and his mediatorial glory. And you'll be orthodox in your truth. So read your Bibles theologically. If you want a book to help you, read Louis Berkhoff's Principles of Interpretation. You'll see, this is a lot of hard work. Yes, it is. But God doesn't want lazy Christians. He wants laboring Christians. He wants people to so value the pearl of great price and the great treasure, they will sell all things and labor till they find him. He doesn't want just proof texters and being basically de facto Roman Catholics. The church believe in my part. I don't have to know what I believe. I don't have to understand what I believe. The church believes and I just assent to it. That is damning faith, not saving faith. And just as you'll learn as a child, 4 to 18, learn how to read, write and study, just like you'll go to college or university, just like you'll go to the workplace and learn new skills, put the same effort into reading the eternal word of life. And when you do, the Bible will be like a new book to you the riches and the depths and the glories of God in Christ will shine forth and you'll just spend time and hours and energy and note-taking and commentaries and doctrine and you'll be well-fed and satisfied in the Word. But second application, Christ's biblical hope of resurrection. Jesus Christ is teaching us that the Christian hope is not the disembodied intermediate state, but is the resurrection of the dead. 
Body and soul separated is death. Living is body and soul together. And God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, awaiting that resurrection as the end hope of his people. The intermediate state is that state between um, the, 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 the death of saints in this world to the second coming, where our bodies go into the ground or buried or whatever, and our souls go immediately to be with the Lord. That's not our hope. Professor John Murray gives two reasons why the intermediate state is never the hope of the Christian. He says, first, preoccupation with a disembodied state fails to have prime concern for the honour and glory of Christ. Christ's work is incomplete. And therefore the saint is unsatisfied until his work is complete. How is Christ's work incomplete? Not all the elect have been saved yet. Not everyone has bowed the knee and confessed Jesus as Lord. Death, which is the last enemy, 1 Corinthians 15, has not been conquered yet. And Jesus Christ's glory as judge of all the earth has not happened yet. And it will, none of these things will happen until the last day and the resurrection. And therefore the Christian is unsatisfied with the disembodied state and for the glory of Christ yearns for the future hope. Second reason why the disembodied state is not a hope, he says, the fault mentioned fails to accord to the resurrection the place it occupies in the salvation of the just. Christians are not completely saved until the resurrection of the dead. When we go to be with God in our souls, death reigns, sin reigns, evil is still in this universe because body and soul is separate. Now this is a comfort, but it's not the hope. It's a comfort, Paul says, in Philippians chapter 1, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which is far better. A wonderful, true comfort. But while we're in that disembodied state, even in the presence of God, we're aware of sin. The saints in heaven right here, right now, are aware of sin. Because their souls without a body. And the Bible teaches redemption is not complete until resurrection. For example, in Romans chapter 8, it says we wait for the redemption of our bodies. 1 Corinthians chapter 130 speaks of Christ being our wisdom, righteousness and sanctification. We have these now. And redemption, speaking of our bodies. Incomplete. And therefore the Christian, for the glory of God and the completion of our redemption, we yearn and long for the resurrection of the dead. 
And this is when the Bible uses the word hope. It never uses it for the disembodied state and uses it for the second coming and the resurrection of the dead. For example, Acts chapter 23, 6, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. Or Acts 24, 15, and I have hope toward God that there shall be a resurrection of the dead. And so, my dear friends, have your hope on the biblical resurrection of the dead. Do not have your hope on the disembodied state. Have your longing, waiting, thirsting, hungering heart for the resurrection. Long and wait and pray and desire the second coming of Christ. So body and soul alive again. We will be with God forever and ever in heaven. And just like we said last week, so that we will behold the beatific glory of Christ. This is to be your hope. But secondly, this is a confident and assured hope. If you deny the resurrection of the dead, you greatly err. So what happens if you affirm it? You are in truth and you're guaranteed of this truth. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob will be raised from the dead. Every brother and sister in Christ will be raised from the dead. No ifs, buts and maybes. Not a worldly hope. Oh, I really hope it happens. I'm unsure. I can't guarantee it but a biblical hope. It is assured because it's based upon God. (coughs) Titus chapter 1. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. God can't lie. Therefore, you will be raised from the dead. It's based also in covenant. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, and my covenant does not end at death. My covenant continues and conquers death. And our confidence in the resurrection is based upon Christ. When Jesus Christ's friend Lazarus died, his sister came out to him, and she said, Oh Jesus, if you were here, he would not have died. And then she confirmed she believes in the resurrection of the dead. But Christ says, no, 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 my child, you don't understand. The resurrection of the dead does not start with a future event. It begins with me. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall live. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection and then the many brethren. As Christ was surely raised from the dead, it's an absolute guarantee that everyone in him shall be raised from the dead. And so, brother and sister in Christ, because this is a biblical hope, a God-promised hope, a covenantal hope, a Christ-centered hope, you are guaranteed resurrection. Now, compare this to the world. The world doesn't have hope. 
People might laugh and mock and say, I don't fear death. But then death comes their way and they're terrified. And whether they admit it or not, they have no hope. And they have a conscience because they're made in the image of God and the conscience says you're damned because of your sins. And they fear death. As Hebrews says, they are subject to fear and bondage of death. But not the Christian. Not the Christian. Because we have a guaranteed confident hope. I will die and I shall be raised and I will be of God forever and ever. But thirdly, this is a living hope. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of the abundance of his mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's living, it's powerful, it's practical. It's a living hope where you are to read your Bible and cultivate more desires for resurrection. Romans 15 verse 4, Whatsoever things were written, were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So be in your Bible. Read Job 19. Read Daniel 12. Read Uh, John chapter 5, read the resurrection passages, read 1 Corinthians 15, read Revelation 20 to 22 and let the word increase your hope. Because when you have this hope, graces are given to you. Romans chapter 15 verse 13, now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. And in Hebrews chapter 6, it says hope is the anchor of your soul. You think of a ship in the midst of a storm. Why does it topple over? It may be shaken, but why is it not destroyed? Because there's an anchor in the seabed and it will not be moved. Our hope is our anchor. It's not anchored in the seabed, it's anchored in heaven. And in this world, there'll be suffering and trials and perplexities and we'll be tossed to and fro at times, but we will not lose our hope because it's anchored in heaven and it can never be moved. Thomas Adams. Hope, her proper seat is upon earth, her proper object is in heaven of a quick and piercing eye that can see the glory of God, the mercy of Christ, the society of saints and angels, the joys of paradise through all the clouds and orbs. As Stephen saw heaven opened and Jesus standing in the holy place, hope is so fixed on the blessedness above that nothing in the world can remove it. But the reality is, we are all going to face death. And what do we do there? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13. It says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning they which are asleep, those who are dead. Ye sorrow not, even as others that have no hope. So he's not saying you can't have sorrow. Jesus Christ sorrowed. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. But do not weep. In despair, you have hope. Because as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, Jesus Christ will return. 
And he shall descend with heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. The Christian looks at death straight in the face. And the Christian says, O death! Where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And therefore, resurrection is our lively hope. And the words of Paul comfort and strengthen one another in these truths. Talk about them a lot. Talk about the resurrection. Talk about what it's like. Talk about its nature. Talk about its objectives. Talk about the second coming. Talk about the glory to come. Talk about the new heavens and the new earth. Talk about paradise regained. Talk about Emmanuel's land. Talk of heavenly Jerusalem. Talk of the streets paved with gold. Talk of the place where there's no sun, no moon, because the light is the glory of the Lamb. Talk about the tree of life in the midst of her. Talk about the healing of the nations. Talk about how you will see him face to face. This is our hope. Let us pray.